Gospels, if you would please, and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 14. 1 Samuel, chapter 14, is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to begin, uh, actually, we're going to read the third uh, scene in an account of a conflict between the Philistines and the Israelites. Certainly not this is... Not the only time they're at battle, but here's a battle account that we have been reading, and this is the third act that we're going to read. Jonathan has been at the center of all of them, and uh, he is involved in this one too. We're going to read that from 1 Samuel chapter 14, starting in verse 23. That's where we're going to begin, but if you have your Bibles open, let's pray, shall we? We'll do that as we continue. Father, we come before you this morning. Your word is open before us. And now we have the privilege of speaking to the author of this most wonderful book. We have read a great deal of it this morning. We are thankful to you for the gift that it is to us, that we can read it in uh, multiple versions in our English language. We're grateful. Father, we come before you this morning and acknowledge together your supremacy over all the nations of the earth. Every nation that exists is merely a drop in the bucket of your greatness and your sovereignty. The nations are just like grains of sand that you measure in the scales. Uh, Lord, we acknowledge you are worthy of the worship of every single person on this planet. Rightly do they praise you in French and Chinese and Japanese. Uh, Rightly do they praise you in Russian and Spanish and Swahili. You are worthy of the worship. And and, and we are grateful to you that uh, within this uh, 24-hour period of time as the earth moves through its its, uh, rotation and its orbit, praise is being sung to your great name all around the world. And yet, Father, this too is a weekend that we think in particular of our own nation and we give you thanks for it. Father, we think of moms and dads and uh, wives and husbands and children, brothers and sisters who will be spending time tomorrow uh, in cemeteries, uh, setting flowers down in front of tombstones, remembering the children, spouses, siblings, parents that they have lost. Father, you are close to the brokenhearted, And uh, I I pray that you would pour out comfort upon those tomorrow who are grieving. As they look to you for help, show yourself strong on their behalf. Those who cast their cares upon you do so wisely because you care for us. You are a God of help. You um, bear sorrows. You um, know how to comfort those who are grieving, and we pray that you would show mercy tomorrow. We are thankful to you, so grateful for the great cost that was born, that we can worship together freely and gladly and joyfully. Father, as we even think about our nation, we would pray for those that are in uh, leadership over us. We voted them into office, uh, we, uh, and yet we know that the heart of the king, the heart of the ruler is in your hand. You guide it in any direction that you will. We pray today for uh, Representative uh, Smucker and we pray for Senator Casey, Senator Toomey. We pray, pray for President Trump and Vice President Pence. We thank you for these men and the, 
men and women who joined them in providing leadership for our country. We pray for them, Paul told us to, so that we might live peaceable and quiet lives. We pray that they would uh, lead um, justly, wisely, temperately. Uh, Father, we pray that you would um, use them and work through the decisions that they make, the votes that they place, the bills that they petition for. Uh, Use them to promote uh, goodness and mercy and justice in our own country. We come before you with gratitude for this land in which we live that is ours. Uh, Lord, we do pray for, too, this morning, our men and women who are serving currently, uh, many in forts and on bases around uh, the United States, many of them overseas. Some of them, they have gathered together in worship with uh, chaplains uh, today, uh, and they're grievously missing their loved ones at home. Would you show them comfort and help, grant them courage in the tasks that you've called them to? As we turn to your word, we pray that you would give us attentiveness to it, that we would love what your word says. We are your sheep, you're our shepherd. Feed us this morning. We pray together in the name of Jesus, saying, Amen. Now, let's read God's word together, shall we? First Samuel chapter 14, verse 23, I think is where... Actually, verse 24 is where I'm going to start. First Samuel 14, 24. Now, the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods and there was honey on the ground. (laughs) When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out. Yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food today. That's why the men are faint. Jonathan said, My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey? How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? That day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Aijalon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder and taking sheep, cattle, and caves, calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, Look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. You have broken faith, he said. Roll a large stone over here at once. Then he said, go out among the men and tell them, each of you bring me your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. So everyone brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he'd done this. Saul said, let us go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn and let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, let us inquire of God for here. So Saul asked God, shall I go down to pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hands? 
But God did not answer him that day. Saul therefore said, Come here, all you who are leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of them said a word. Saul then said to the Israelites, You stand over there, and I and Jonathan and my son will stand over here. Do what seems best to you, they replied. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, Why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is in me or my son Jonathan, respond with Urim. But if the men of Israel are at fault, respond with Thuman. Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot, and the men were cleared. Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son, and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told them, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. Saul said, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, Should Jonathan die? He who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never! As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. For he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines, and they withdrew to their own land. After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side, Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the king of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Saul's sons were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. The name of his older daughter was Merib, and the younger of the younger was Michael. His wife's name was Ahinoam, daughter of Ahimanaz. The name of the commander of Saul's army was Abner, son of Ner, and Ner was Saul's uncle. Saul's father, Kish, and Abner's father, Ner, were sons of Abiel. All the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines. And whenever Saul saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service. Several years ago, a psychologist by the name of Robert Leahy wrote a book called Anxiety Free. And this is what he said in the book. He said, we live in an age of anxiety. We've become a nation of nervous wrecks. I wonder if you agree with him about that. We're a nation of nervous wrecks. Well, here's some of the evidence he cited. Uh, In any given year, 18% 18 of Americans will suffer from a nervous disorder which is twice the number of those who suffer from depression. And if you broaden the experience, not just from any given year, but find out how many Americans in a lifetime will experience some sort of anxiety disorder, the number increases to 30%, one of every three of us. Uh, He said, our levels of anxiety have increased greatly over time. In fact, the average average 10-year-old exhibits the same level of anxiety as the regular psychiatric patient in the 1950s. Now, um, we have a lot more things. We have a lot more material security, but still this anxiety, this fear threatens us. Why? He lists several um, causes. Separation from extended family, loss of community and neighborhood, uncertain employment, threats of terrorism, uncertain futures, high medical costs, immersion in technology, and lack of emotional support. Just a few of the things, he says, are making us a nation of nervous wrecks. And we're learning about fear these days. We're talking about it. And it's terrible 
ability to control your life. And some of you feel that constriction keenly. You feel it in your life, fear. Others of you maybe are, have been surprised by some of the connections that this passage is, these passages of Scripture make. Last week, two weeks ago, we talked about the relationship between fear and disobedience to God. We often don't talk about disobedience being motivated by fear, but certainly was the case in Saul's life. Today what I want to do is I want to talk to you about a couple more ways that fear manifests itself. Both of them are present. Both of them are uh, present in the life of King Saul. That's our subject. That's what we're going to talk about. Before we get there, though, I just want to talk a little bit. I want to remind you of the fact that though we're talking about fear in Saul's life, that's actually only one slice of his life. Uh, It's characteristic of his life, but it's not comprehensive to describe his life. That's why... At the end of chapter 14, the author of Samuel writes about all the things that Saul did. Verse 48 says, he fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites. That's pretty good. Some point in time in his life, Saul got his act together and was used by God to deliver the Israelites from the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites and the king of Zobah and Philistines. Great. Good for you, Saul. That's that's good. Now, we admit here, verse 52, Saul did what Samuel said he was going to do. He took soldiers. He conscripted people into his army all the time. That's true. But by and large, Saul was used by God to protect and provide for his people. An emphasis has not been here in these chapters, but I I find great encouragement for it because here we have an example of God caring for his people. He's defending them from their enemies, even though he's using this somewhat broken king. We read from Psalm 20, Lord give, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. And Saul is God's anointed, and God is using Saul to deliver the people. I find that encouraging. I think you should find that encouraging too. God is able to provide everything that your family needs, even though you're in it. Even though you're the one who is... Leading with all the problems that you have. God is able to work through you to call the members of your Sunday school class to himself. Even though you're the teacher. I mean you. God's able to work through you to guard your growth group from wandering into, uh, from fidelity to him. And I'm not trying to dismiss the fact that you have some serious flaws that you really need to address. That's true. But God still cares for his people. The fact that God's caring for them doesn't mean that you can just sit back and do nothing. But remember, Jesus said, I will build my church. And I'm grateful this morning he uses flawed pastors. You deserve someone a whole lot better than me standing behind this pulpit. God uses flawed people to provide for and care for his people. Testament to his greatness, his goodness. I hope you find that encouraging because the rest of the time we're in this chapter is not going to be very encouraging. In fact, it's, it should trouble you. Let's talk about that. We're going to talk about this by way of contrast. So from chapters 13 through 15, we have a major emphasis of Saul's career. 
and, and uh, Saul and Jonathan, his son, they, they're contrasted with each other. We have a father who lives by fear and Jonathan who lives by faith. And we're learning about what fear does. We're learning about the contrast between fear and faith. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about two more contrasts that are in this passage. And the first one that I want to talk about is self-protection versus self-forgetfulness. Fear manifests itself in self-protection. Faith manifests itself in self-forgetfulness. The first section of this passage is about Saul and his commitment to protecting himself. As the story opens, Saul here makes uh, this oath. He puts the whole army under an oath. He calls down a curse on anyone who eats anything before evening comes, and this is a foolish vow. It's very foolish. There are a lot of examples of foolish vows in the Bible. Uh, The Bible tells us in the Old Testament, when you make a vow, an oath before God, you need to fulfill it. So make that oath very carefully. And there are foolish vows. This vow actually makes me think of Jephthah. Do you remember Jephthah? Jephthah's story is told in the book of Judges. When we first started Samuel, remember I mentioned that in the Hebrew Bible, uh, Samuel is part of a seven-book collection called the Former Prophets. It tells the story of Israel, starts from Joshua, ends in Second Chronicles, and Samuel's in the middle. And oftentimes, the way Hebrew narratives works is there's a lot of recapitulation or a lot of, lot of uh, scenes that seem familiar. So here's a situation that one person faced and what they did about it. And here, this person is going to face a very similar situation. What are they going to do? That's how we're supposed to learn. This vow here reminds me of Jephthah. Uh, in the days of Jephthah, the Israelites were uh, being oppressed by the Ammonites. And... Uh, uh, they didn't have a king at the time, so they went to Jephthah. This, he was kind of a guerrilla leader. And, and they went to Jephthah, and they said, would you lead our army out to defeat the Ammonites? And, and Jephthah agreed to do it, but he made a vow. Look at Judges chapter 11, verse 30. I wrote it down on your note sheet, I think. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, the text says, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will be, sacrifice it as a burnt offering. I don't know what he thought would come running out of his house. When you come home, who greets you first? Did he think it was going to be his dog, maybe? His goat? A chicken? I don't know. What do you think was going to come out? Say hi to him. The text tells us that it was his daughter, his only child. The text doesn't say explicitly what happened, but there's enough clues in the text to indicate that he probably did what he had vowed. He offered her as a burnt offering. It was a terrible vow. (coughs) And like here, the victim of that vow was a beloved child. See the similarities between Saul and Jephthah? Well, the chief reason that Saul's vow was foolish is because this is how you sealed the victory. In this day, you went out onto the battlefield... You, you fought against the enemy, you drove them off the field, and they would run home back to their walled cities. And, and the goal was to chase them down and kill them or capture them before they got to the safety of their walled cities. That's how you won. And by making this vow, uh, uh, Saul uh, uh, kept them all uh, hungry and, and, and um, tired, and he didn't allow them to refresh themselves for the rest of the battle. It was a foolish vow. This actually reminds me a little bit of the Battle of Dunkirk the beginning of World War II. 
Some of you remember your history. The uh, British Expeditionary Force, the Allied forces, were uh, reeling. The Germans were coming, and they trapped the British uh, between the English Channel and the, the, the German army. They had nowhere to go. And um, the word went out in Great Britain, and they sent all their boats over to get their soldiers and bring them home across the English Channel. I am told that Adolf Hitler knew the situation and he knew the decisive blow that the German army could have made against the Allied forces, but he actually commanded his troops to uh, slow down their assault, to, to not go as fast or press the battle as hard. I think he was hoping that the British would surrender and then the war would come to an end that way. That was very foolish because Dunkirk became a rallying cry. We're the British. We rescue our soldiers. We send rowboats and sailboats and fishing boats. We rescue our soldiers. We never surrender. That's what we do. It was a bad move uh, on Adolf Hitler's part. And the Philistines are on the run. And in order to chase down the fleeing soldiers, you need the strength that comes from food. The vow is foolish. The text tells us that in a number of ways, actually. When Jonathan broke the vow here, his eyes immediately brightened. We read about it in verse 29 here of uh, chapter 14. What's it say? Jonathan said, My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey? Now there's, there's wonder in this text, wonderful things here. Trouble. That word trouble is a word, it means trouble, but the Hebrew word, it sounds like the word for muddy, uh, muddy, making something muddy. Jonathan says, look how bright my eyes are and my father's vow is a muddying vow. Clouds things up. I'm bright, he's cloudy. But then the word trouble, actually, it's, it's a word, well, we're going to go back again in the Bible. It makes me think of a scene from the book of Joshua um, there was a man by the name of Achan. Do you know what Achan, the name means? It means trouble. My father's made Achan for the country. Um, Achan, here's what happened. You know the story. There's a great victory in uh, Jericho, the Israelites had, and uh, every, all the plunder was supposed to go to God, to the tabernacle uh, for God's glory. And Achan decided to keep some of it for himself. He was driven by his self-interest, and he hid some of those things. And God punished the people by making them lose a battle. That sounds like Saul, right? Selfish act, put the Israelites in danger. Huh. My father's made trouble, trouble. Uh, the vow has terrible consequences in this scene, too, that take place after dark. The army is so hungry after dark that they kill the animals and they eat the meat without properly draining the blood. Now, to his credit, Saul did something about that. They wouldn't have this problem, though, if he'd let them eat during the day. Saul, he made trouble, lots of trouble. Why? Why did he make this vow? Uh, one or two scholars that I read said that Saul made this vow because he, it, it's a way of, of getting God's help. He wants God to help him in the battle. I'm not, I'm not sure, though. Look what it says in verse 24 again. When, when Saul makes the vow, the oath, he says, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before, here's the key verse, phrase, I have avenged myself on my enemies. Does that sound like someone who's real concerned about God's glory? About getting God's help? What's he doing? I want vengeance on my enemies. 
Actually, I hate to do this again, but you know who this reminds me of? Samson, right? This is Samson's final plea. God, give me strength so that I can get vengeance on my enemies. See, Saul, Jephthah, Achan, Samson, that's not a good team to be on, right? Saul. Uh, the Bible here is, is giving us an insight into what fear produces. Fear is a self-protective emotion. Now, it's good when it's self-protective to keep us from harm. That's what fear is supposed to do. It is a good and godly thing when uh, uh, somebody tells you to jump down a 20-foot cliff and you're afraid. That's good and godly. Okay, that's, 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 It's not cool, but it's good and godly that you're afraid of doing that. Good gift. But here what we have is a fear. Paul, uh, Saul has fear that is working to keep him from being forgotten or neglected or unappreciated or outshone. Some of you, you think of fear and you think of your own fear and your fear is something that makes you withdraw and and hide. I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be noticed. I don't want anybody to look at me or talk about me. I just want to hide in my own corner. That Fear does manifest itself that way. Here, though, is the manifestation of fear that is bold and that is loud. Sometimes fear is loud. This is the fear of the bully on the playground who's not going to let anybody pick on him. He's just going to go after you because he can't be shown to be weak because he's afraid of being shown to be weak. This is the type of fear that throws itself into any conversation because, uh, because you can't stand to be left out. Or neglected. It's the type of fear that comments on every post on Facebook, so their name is in fr- so your name is in front of everybody else, so they see you and notice you. And, and it's the type of fear that drives you to look at, over and over again at your phone to see how many people liked your recent selfie and your comments. How many people are commenting? It's the fear of of being neglected or forgotten or outshone. What drives Saul here? This is actually, you can see the relationship between fear and pride. Pride is this understanding of who you are. I am this excellent of a person. And fear is the sentinel that guards this image of yourself. Fear can be self-protective in being loud and pushy and demanding. Malcolm Gladwell uh, hosts a podcast called Revisionist History. It's very interesting to listen to. In one of his first episodes, he talked about uh, research into foul shots in the NBA. When you stand on the foul line and shoot. Uh, Rick Barry uh, played professional basketball. He had 89.9% of his shots from the free, uh, free throw line. It's a very high percentage. But he also had a very unorthodox technique. He would shoot underhand. Everybody else shoots like this. He would shoot underhand. This is classic, of course, known as the granny shot, right? Apologies to all the grannies in the room, okay? But he would shoot from from between his legs and up and into the basket. Uh, Physicists will tell you that that is the most accurate way you can shoot the ball from that distance. It's the best angle. You can put a backspin on it that gives you a lot more control about where it's going to go. It's a wonderful way to take foul shots. Uh, 
You've heard of Wilt Chamberlain, I'm sure. Wilt Chamberlain, I think it was in Hershey, didn't he? Has set the record for the most points scored in a game. Uh, Wilt Chamberlain uh, scored over 100 points uh, on uh, March 2nd, 1962. There was something unique about that game that Wilt Chamberlain did. Wilt Chamberlain that day shot his foul shots like that. Usually Wilt Chamberlain, when he would shoot like this, would make uh, 54% of his free throws. Uh, this day, when he did it like this, March 2nd, he made 28 of 32. Dramatic improvement. Uh, why don't you see players in the NBA shoot their free throws that way? You probably know the answer. Rick, uh, Wilt Chamberlain actually gave it. He didn't do it anymore after that. Uh, Rick Barry, Malcolm Gladwell, a very simple am- answer. They're, people are too embarrassed or they're too proud or both. It looks silly. No one wants to be accused of making a granny shot. Uh, that's the self-protective nature of fear. Faith is self-forgetful in contrast to that self-protection. I want to talk with you about self-forgetfulness for just a few minutes. And I'd like to take you to another place in the Bible. I want you to turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Dave referred to this passage when he prayed this morning. But I want you to flip over to Philippians chapter 2. And I want to show you in this passage characteristics. Paul here writes about four different people. And he tells us what self-forgetfulness looks like. I'm going to show that to you. And then I want to argue with you that faith, the same faith that lays hold of Jesus for salvation, is the faith that leads us to self-forgetfulness. You already, if you're a follower of Jesus and you have trusted in him, you already have within you the seedbed for self-forgetfulness. I want to demonstrate that to you. But first, let's talk about what does self-forgetfulness look like? Four things. Number one, obedience. It looks like obedience. Uh, This hymn that's written about the Lord Jesus in verses 5 through 11 is beautiful. The most important phrase for our purposes today, we could spend a long time talking about this, is verse 8. Being found, the Lord Jesus, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Self-forgetfulness means that someone else has the right in your life to set your agenda. Someone else, namely God, has the right to set the agenda for your life. Self-forgetfulness also involves service. That's what we learned from Timothy. Service is the second word. And look at verse 21. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Except Timothy, too. Actually, this is a reference, I think, back to verse 4 where Paul says in chapter 2, verse 4, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This is a miraculous type of transformation that happens in this uh, service. Having such confidence in God that you're not worried about your own interests because you you will trust that He is able to meet the needs that you have. A beautiful picture of uh, in, in marriage of what's supposed to happen to one another. I know an, an older couple, and um, 
<laughs> I just learned this recently. I did not know this, but um, w- when you reach a certain age, it gets tougher and tougher to get down to your feet and cut your toenails, right? So one of the ways that this husband and wife would show love for one another is they cut each other's toenails. It's not very romantic. I don't think they painted them. It's not very romantic at all, right? But look, I'll care for you. You care for me. This is how things, you look out, I'll look out for your interests. You look out for my interests. This is how you care for one another. And here's what Timothy's doing. He's, he's serving, now, since we're talking about toenails, next word, sacrifice. Ugh. Okay, right? Sacrifice is the next word. And we're going to talk about Epaphroditus. Verse 25, I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my, cobra, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Um, uh, Epaphroditus is serving to the point of where it costs him. It almost cost him his life. Some people have the idea that serving is something that you fit in into the margins of your life. I'll serve or I'll give as long as it doesn't hinder what I'm trying to do. There's a clothing drive. Great. I'll donate clothes because I have a lot that I don't really wear. Church work day. Great. As long as I don't have anything else planned, I'll be there. Um, You need money for the building expansion fund. Great. Let me look for some spare change in the couch because I'm pretty sure there's some there. Forgot about it and I don't really need it, but I'll give it to the building expansion fund. As long as I don't have to sacrifice, I will serve. Now, there's a lot of people in our church, a lot of people who understand that, that uh, when you serve, your bucket list takes a back seat, right? There are movies that they don't watch and books they don't read and shows they don't follow and games they don't see and vacations they don't take and experiences they don't have because they've given away the time and the money that they would use for those things to serve other people. In Saul's case, he wants the Israelite soldiers to sacrifice for him. Self-forgetfulness, though, sacrifices for others. That's number three. Here's number four, self-forgetfulness. Cheerfulness. Cheerfulness. This actually comes from the life of the Apostle Paul. Verse 17, we'll go back a little bit. He says, Even if I am being poured out, if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now you remember a few years ago when we went through the book of Leviticus, um, you'll remember perhaps during the sacrifice season when they made sacrifices, they would make more than just meat sacrifices. We often think about the lambs or the uh, bulls that were offered as sacrifices, but they would do more than just the animal. There was a grain sacrifice that they would make before the animal sacrifice, and then at the end they would pour wine over the sacrifice. Um, the, the, I, the image is that the sacrifice is a meal. We have a complete meal, a full course meal. There's the bread, there's the main dish, and there's something to drink at the end. And Paul says, if, I, if in your life all I function as is, is the drink at the end, I'm really happy about that. I don't care. You can be the main course in the kingdom of God and I'll be the parsley. That's all. And I'm just happy about it. You go up on stage in the lights and take the bowels and get the roses and the standing ovation. I'm happy. I'll be in the wings 
and I'll be applauding too. I'll be so happy to see that. You see the sense of self-forgetfulness? It's what Paul has in 1 Corinthians 3 when he writes, Oh, who am I? I'm just a servant. Some, some of us plant, some of us water, some of us bring in the harvest. I, I, I don't care. I'm just happy to, to be involved in this process. Cheerfulness. I'm so glad to do it. All of these elements of self-forgetfulness are produced by faith. The same type of faith that connects you to Jesus Christ in the first place. That is, the same faith that makes you a Christian is the faith that produces this sense of self-forgetfulness. Or, if I could put it more in a negative way, the fear that leads to self-protection is inconsistent with the faith that lays hold of Christ for salvation. Now, let me explain that here. When the Bible describes our spiritual condition, it tells us that we are in a terrible state. Verse 15 of uh, Philippians 2 says that we are in a warped and crooked generation. This makes me think of some of the barns that I see in western New York. I don't see barns like this around here very much, but if you drive through western New York, when we go up to visit my in-laws at their house, you can see along one of the main routes crumbling old barns all over the place. Again, they're not around here. They probably just need more Mennonites in western New York and they'd fix that problem. But anyway, uh, there's no tobacco. I think that has something to do with it too. No tobacco. Uh, they're crumbling. And you, you drive by and you think, how is that barn still standing? A windstorm go blow that away or snow fall and knock it over. Can't believe- they used to be good, solid, useful buildings, but now they're, they lean over or they're roofless. They're broken. That's an image of what we're like. It's not how human beings were made, but it's what we're like now in our rebellion against God. Verse 14 tells us how you know you're crooked and warped. Do you know how you know that? Because you grumble and complain a lot. I didn't think my complaining was that bad. It is. It's a manifestation of your disconnect from your creator God. This is our condition, but then somebody came and told you about Jesus. Maybe it was your mom, your dad, maybe it was a teacher of yours, or a friend, or a neighbor, and they told you about what Jesus did on the cross, that he, as Paul wrote, became sin for us. That is, he became bent and broken for us in our place, and he bore all of the wrath that we deserve from God. He died and rose again, and you heard that story, and you said, Aha! That's an expression of faith, right? Aha! That is the answer. Jesus forgives and gives life to all who believe. He takes broken barns and he turns them into, he uses this word, stars that shine in the sky. That's what he does. Now that that logic that drives you to turn to him in faith because he provides forgiveness and life, that same logic drives you toward self-forgetfulness. You lay a hold of him for salvation because he's the Savior and his work of rescuing people is such a demonstration of his goodness and his power that this same laying a hold of type faith looks at him and says, you have forgiven me, what else do you have? Do you have anything else? Remember the scene in, in Oliver Twist, right? He, he holds his bowl and he very famously goes up and 
wants more gruel. Please, sir, I want some more. Right? Now, Oliver Twist is not asking for more gruel because the gruel is so good. He's asking for more gruel because he has such intense need. I'm so hungry. Give me some more. We come before God with a bowl outstretched that says, I want some more. Not because, well, not solely because we have so much need, although that's true. We come because this is so good. I'm not looking for more gruel. I'm looking for food from the feast of heaven. Give me more. I have already laid a hold of you as my Savior for faith, for forgiveness. Will you give me more? Give me more. Set the agenda for my life. I'll do what you ask me to do. You're so wise to have rescued me through the Lord Jesus. I'll trust you. Because of your great generosity, I'll, I'll take, I, I can sacrifice because I just want what you have because it's so good. I'll be glad about it because, because you, what you have planned is far better than anything else I have planned. Do you see how the same faith that lays hold of Christ for salvation is also the same faith that frees us from self-protection and moves us to this sense of self-forgetfulness? Uh, we're in the process, the final stages, really, of planning our annual family event. It's next month. It's called Cousins Camp. I've talked about it before. Cousins Camp, of course, is uh, a few days of fun for my kids and all their cousins, and it is planned and hosted by Grandma and Grandpa. They set the agenda. And my kids go to Cousins Camp because they know that Grandma and Grandpa can plan a great week. They know how to have fun. We do not let my four-year-old nephew, Declan, plan Cousins Camp. We love the kid, but he's four years old and he doesn't know anything. Okay? Um, we don't want to sit around all week and watch reruns of Paw Patrol. Okay? I've played with Matchbox cars in my life. I don't want to do it for days at a time. Declan has neither the experience nor the wisdom, nor the resources to plan for Cousins Camp. But we go to Cousins Camp and we trust that Grandma and Grandpa, because they have the wisdom and the experience and the uh, resources to provide for Cousins Camp, we, we go and I don't care what's going to happen because Grandma and Grandpa are going to plan it and I know it'll be fun because they've set the agenda. Declan makes a much better participant in Cousins Camp than planner in Cousins Camp. You make a much better participant in God's plans than trying to be a planner of God's plans. Have you figured that out? That's what, that's what faith is. The same God who plans out your salvation also calls you out of yourself. I trust you, God, to set the agenda for my life. Do you know where I see dear brothers and sisters struggle with this the most, perhaps, in their lives? I see it, um, they see them struggle with it when they lose the ability to set their own agenda. That day is coming. It will happen for all of us. You will reach a point in your life where your body or your mind will not respond like it used to. And your mind won't work the way it does right now. And you will lose the ability to set your agenda for your own life. And someone else will tell you where you need to live and what you need to eat and how you need to spend your money. And it makes people mad. 
these dear, sweet saints follow Jesus for 50 years and they get to the point where you say to them, we can't live here anymore. And they get mad. I mean, just mad and mean. You wonder, it. Maybe, maybe they were being sweet because it was easy, because they were being sweet on their own schedule. Now they don't get to set their own schedule. Someone else is telling them to set their own schedule, and it's not so easy to be sweet when someone else is telling you what to do. If you're young and healthy, see, you're just living under an illusion. It's all an illusion that you're self-sufficient and that, that you're strong enough to manage life. Pretty soon that illusion is going to go away. God bless you when it happens. Are the promises in the presence of God enough for you to trust in when you are losing the control that you take such pride in right now? Fear is self-protecting. Faith is self-forgetful. There's another contrast in this passage that we need to talk about. We don't have very much time to talk about it, but that's okay because we've, we've touched on it already at least once. So we talked about two contrasts in this passage of 1 Samuel 14. Fear uh, is self-protecting. Faith is self-forgetful. Here's the other contrast. The contrast we see, secondly, between certainty and wisdom. Certainty and wisdom. Saul is obsessed with rituals. Why is Saul obsessed with rituals? And here it's the Urim and the Thummim. We'll talk about that. Why is Saul obsessed with rituals? Because he is afraid to make a decision. He doesn't want to make a decision. He wants God to tell him everything that he is supposed to do directly. He doesn't want to make a wise decision. Now think about that here in this passage. We have in this passage the most detailed in the Old Testament explanation of the Urim and the Thummim that we have in all the Bible. Here we actually... We know about it from the uh, books of Moses, but here we see it actually being used. This is the most detailed. It, it appears, I talked about this last week, that the high priest would have an, an apron sort of thing with a pocket on it, and inside the pocket would be two stones, the Urim and the Thummim, and he would pull out, he would reach in and pull out one of the stones, and the, the color of the stone that he pulled out would indicate God's will. That appears to be what's happening here in this passage. God isn't answering so Saul decides it's because someone's broken the oath and he's going to have this very public, very stylized, ritualized uh, uh, technique to find out who the guilty party is. And he's so certain, of course, he's sh- this is such a show, isn't it? We'll have everybody else stand over there and Jonathan and I will stand over here. Right? He's very confident. It would have been wise for Saul at this point in time to turn to Jonathan and say, I didn't do anything. Did you do anything? I mean, that would have been wise, right? His shock that the stone comes out and it's, it's Saul and John. Oops. Oops. And then, actually, so then, then they have to go through it again to pick Jonathan. It's all about ritual. And, and the ritual manifests itself where, where Saul says, I don't care who it is because I made an oath and this is a ritual and I believe it and I'm going to follow the letter of the law. I don't care. He's going to have to die. Even Jonathan is going to die. I'm not sure if in verse 43, I kind of hope so, but I'm not sure if Jonathan is not being sarcastic here. I hope so because that is my spiritual gift. But um, Jonathan says... I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I have to die. Right? Is that, what, is that how he speaks? Like, as if to say, Dad, 
not a smart move, right? Notice, you notice in this passage here how Saul has changed since he became king. When he was first king, crowned king, there was a group of, and the Bible uses this term, worthless men who opposed him being king, and his supporters wanted to execute the worthless men. And Saul says, no, no, today's not a day to die. Today we've won a great military victory. Don't do that. Look how much he's changed. Here he says, kill him, kill him, kill him, right? You notice how he's changed so much, Saul? This is utter folly. Saul, think. Use your head, Saul. What can you do now? The fact that Jonathan, the hero of the day, is the one who is the guilty party should show you. You made a foolish vow. Now, Saul, uh, the army refuses to let Jonathan die. They, they stop Saul. That's good. They rescue him. It's interesting. God uses Jonathan to rescue the army. Now the army is going to be used by God to rescue Jonathan. Uh, it doesn't say. My guess is that, that they, they paid money. You could do this in the Old Testament law. Uh, when you had made a vow about something, you, you could redeem it by paying money and giving it to the, temp, the tabernacle. And that's probably what they did here with Jonathan to rescue him from this vow. Fearful people, fearful people are afraid to make decisions. They rely on signs or they want more information. Something that will make their decision clearer, that will take away any sort of uncertainty. They want to eliminate any risk or any chance that they might make a mistake. This might be true for some of you um, who are graduating or who have graduated. It's time to make some significant decisions. So you feel this pressure, and you feel this pressure sometimes when you're going to buy a car or when it's time to buy a house or when you think about marriage, finding a church. God expects you to, by faith, make a good decision. But you refuse to decide because you're so afraid of making a wrong choice. But God has provided the resources for you to make a wise decision. You must use them and act. He's given you everything you need to move forward. He's given you his word. He's given you the wise counsel of his people. He's given you gifts, opportunities. He's placed you in certain circumstances. You already have it. Don't look for certainty. If you look for certainty, you are entering into a game that you cannot win. How much of the hesitancy that you have in your life right now is driven by fear. We're going to take a break from Saul today, and we're going to stop talking about him for a little bit in 1 Samuel. We're going to come back to him uh, on July 9th. We have one more chapter where Saul is the main character. It's in chapter 15. And uh, this is Saul's definitive rejection as king. And lo and behold, you'll be shocked to know this. What's the main cause for why God rejects Saul as king? Fear. Fear. It's not the way that God calls us to live. Jack Gruppel is a leadership coach. He works with some nationally known companies. He has a retreat center in Florida. And he recently told about what happened when he had two different groups that came down to his retreat center. The first group that came down was a group of linebackers from the NFL. So he got up early in the morning with these guys and he gathered them together and he said, all right, gentlemen, uh, the borders of the property are just through these woods on the other side. If you go through these woods, you'll find on the other side of the property uh, a post and I want you, I'm going to give you a ribbon and I want you to run out and tie this post, this ribbon around the post and then come back. 
You got it? Linebackers, yes, we got it. Good. He said, now, be careful, though. Uh, we were out wandering around a little bit, getting things ready this morning, and we heard, and I think we saw, a wild boar out there in the woods. They're a little dangerous, um, but you'll be okay. Just, so keep your eyes open and, and just go ahead and do it. It'll be fine. So he sent the linebackers out. What the linebackers did not know was that he had also sent out a cameraman into the woods uh, with a camera and the ability to hide behind bushes. So uh, he has it on film, all captured. The, camera, the NFL linebackers came up near him, and they, this is the way they were walking through the woods, you know, uh, looking. And then the cameraman rustled the bushes and snorted <laughs> and captured on film these linebackers screaming and running away. Now, next week, he had a, a, another group come. This is a group of operatives from the Central Intelligence Agency. He got them up one morning, early in the morning, told them the exact same story. There's a post here in the woods, told them about the boar, sent out the cameraman. The CIA, CIA operatives came through the forest and they heard the snorting, and they heard the rustle of the bushes, and immediately all of them got into uh, their combat positions. And Jack Grapple says, whose organization was most exalted by the courage of its members? Who are you exalting by your faith or by your fear? Who are you serving? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for this uh, passage of Scripture that, that tries to help us uh, as we think about the control that fear has in our lives. Lord, there's no one in this room who is free from the temptation to act in such a way that protects themselves. We are not inclined to the self-forgetfulness that the gospel calls us to. Lord, I'm thankful to you for your evidences of grace that are present in many men and women in this congregation who they live that sort of self-forgetfulness even as they struggle with fear. Oh, help us. We are those who because of our faith in the Lord Jesus want to obey you and yet we're afraid to do so. Who's going to look out for us if we're serving the interests of Jesus Christ or, or others, who's going to care for us? Remind us that you will, according to your goodness, power, and promises. Oh, help us. Help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.